Hey y'all, this is Christina with another Bottom of the Map extended interview. This week, we're going to listen back to a conversation we had with Dr. Michelle Height, Associate Professor of English at Spelman College here in Atlanta. Now, we had spoken to Dr. Height for our interviews about how hip-hop memorializes the Atlanta child murders. That's when, from 1979 to 1981, 30 black boys, girls, and adults were found dead throughout Atlanta. Now, since Michelle studies themes of death and mourning in African-American literature and culture, we thought she'd be a fitting guest to discuss the enduring remembrance and survivor's guilt that Andre 3000 expresses in Travis Scott's The Ends. We're revisiting this conversation for two reasons. As the number of COVID-19 cases continues to grow, I've noticed how much we fretted over how to best optimize our time that we spend self-quarantined. In our minds, the hustle must continue because that's what we are just used to, right? But this interview with Michelle reminds us that in times when the future seems uncertain, it is of utmost importance that we recognize our grief. And it's also important for us to understand that grieving is of paramount importance to our survival. So check out this interview with Dr. Michelle Height. I'm music journalist Christina Lee. I'm writer, researcher, and professor Dr. Regina N. Bradley. This is Bottom of the Map. Southern hip-hop explored, explained, exalted. Well, just begin by introducing yourself. Please. Okay. Well, my name is Michelle Height. Uh, do you want to know where I work and all that good stuff? You better tell them who you are. Yeah. Dr. Michelle all Height. right. I'm Dr. Michelle Height, and I just got tenure, so I'm associate professor. <clears throat> Michelle Height. Uh, I'm the director of the honors program at Spelman, and I teach in the English department. So actually, this um, my interest in writing about the Atlanta child murders started in class. Um, so I have a course on Emmett Till, and it's called Emmett Till, The Cultural Afterlife of an American Boy. Mm -hmm. And I have a course called When Sorrows Come, Death and Mourning in African-American Culture. And I don't know, I mean, it's sort of odd to even think about it this way, but for all the years that I grew up thinking about Emmett Till even, there was a moment when I realized that he had been a boy that hadn't been marked for his fate by his parents and by people who knew him. And I think in my imagination, he was always marked for August 28, 1955. Marked meaning what? Meaning that the story that would emerge about him, that we would come to know him as the boy um, whose mother drew attention to his awful fate, that somehow his 14 years, he had been living knowing that that moment was going to come, mm. right? So he was sort of in my head, the afterlife of him had always informed his life. But it got to a point where I realized that that wasn't true, that he was a real boy who had joys and sorrows and friends and life and laughter. So growing up myself, I remembered that vulnerability, um, the experience of vulnerability, and I began to realize how little we talked about it in American culture, in popular American culture, but I heard it in the song, the ends, mm -hmm. with 
Andre 3000 Mm -hmm. and the way that he was in conversation with Travis Scott. And when I'm hearing this song, I'm hearing it in the time of Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and these boys who also had been boys. Mm -hmm. And so I did remember the Atlanta child murders. So because I teach in the AUC and I knew that we have Maynard Jackson's archive, Mm -hmm. that's sort of what began as the context for thinking about how I would work with my students, about thinking about black life in totality. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, because you were the one who introduced me to what you call the funeral box, which right. is, it's, it's seared in my mind now. It's box yeah. 148 of the Maynard yep. Jackson. Um, and, and, you know, I went and I remember we were talking about it because we were like swapping, like teaching ideas and stuff like that. And you were just like, the funeral box changed the game. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you get your students to engage mm-hmm. Um, that idea of mourning, in particular using that, and like mm-hmm. your students' responses to that, are they the reason you call it the funeral box? They are. Well, and I think I th- that began because, um, again, in thinking about the real experience of people like Emmett Till, I remembered reading that Tamir Rice's mother had been encouraged to keep him in the morgue. Because if they were going to go to trial, it would be better for him to be in the morgue so he would be available as opposed to being buried. Well, what she didn't know at the time and what I didn't know at the time was that it cost $75 a day to keep a body in the morgue, right? So she did it, but then she didn't have the eventual $18,000 to pay for the storage. So eventually they had to cremate him. Mm-hmm. So a part of what I was interested in was knowing that those children from 79 to 81 who were killed in what we now call the Atlanta child murders, that they were for mostly poor families. Mm-hmm. And if now it can cost too much to die, it was certainly true to cost too much to die in 1979 for people who didn't have a lot of money. So... I thought that it would be a way for students to understand poverty um, in a concrete way. So I initially just sort of had previewed the check collection, and I was curious to see what was in there. So I was going through correspondence and print material, and then I came upon a box that was sort of dedicated to the funerals of the children. And it is so moving because a part of what, and this is sort of what my students saw, is that what it meant to be poor in 1979 was that you didn't have a phone. So you see these letters that the families are writing to Maynard Jackson and he's responding. You see, like there was one family that had 10 children. So oftentimes when the bodies would be found, they'd be decomposed. Mm. But that would also mean that they didn't have clothes. And so the families were trying to figure out how they were going to clothe the children. But for that 10, it was also, and how are we going to be clothed? So you would see the mayor's office sending, um, and now I know that the SELC women, 
that they were responsible for sort of going out and making these purchases. Mm-hmm. But it looks like Jackson himself is sort of his office is coordinating the purchasing of pantyhose and slips and socks and shirts and suits. And so, I mean, there's this way in which you, I think, you come to empathize because it's such an intimate experience mm-hmm. of being with those families as the, as they're figuring out how to pay respects at a time when you couldn't just roll into a funeral right. as you were. Right. You had to come dressed, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's, um, it, you know, there was this just really generous effort from the entire country in general. But it really looks like Maynard Jackson is the one who's sort of extending the graces to these families. And it's also, it seems, a a part of visibility, Mm -hmm. right? Is that in order for people to see you and respond to you, you need to be presented in a particular type of way. So one of the things that I came across when I was doing research for this episode Mm -hmm. was um, it was like a ledger of prisoners who were sending money, which adds an additional layer of that question of not only access, Mm -hmm. but also, like, who do we take money from and who do we... Who do we thank for? Thank this for, right? So, like, the humanity mm-hmm. of these children mm-hmm. from this impoverished background in conversation with these prisoners mm-hmm. who also are trying to fight for a particular sense of humanity mm-hmm. within this industrial complex, yes, prison right. industrial complex, was a really humbling moment for me in ways that I hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. Like, it was really easy for me to think about the child murders in the aftermath of that that immediate aftermath of the mm-hmm. civil rights movement, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, so everything wasn't taken care of. Mm-hmm. You have this added anxiety about um, not only class and representations mm-hmm. of class, but also Atlanta trying to struggle to hold on to this idea of the city too busy to hate. Mm-hmm. But if the city too busy to hate is, is having murdered children mm-hmm. too quickly to keep up with, mm-hmm. you know, where does that leave us in terms of trying to be like this beacon on the hill? Gina was the editor for a special issue of Southern Hip Hop for a journal called Phylon. And, right, it was just a general call for people who were doing um, intellectual work on Southern Hip Hop. And so for a long time, I have been writing or teaching about the Atlanta child murders and um, James Baldwin, mostly. But there had been these discussions in the culture. I wasn't the first to identify Andre thinking in, about the Atlanta child murders, you know, on Genius. They were talking about it. And so it became an occasion. This article that I was writing um, became an occasion for me to reflect on some of the things that were already in circulation. But they weren't talking about it the way that I wanted to, thinking about Andre um, being in conversation with James Baldwin, and James Baldwin's voice had become so important to the Black Lives Matter movement. I saw them speaking in common. Um, So for me, a part of what the essay gave me an opportunity to do was sort of talk about hip hop as this site for mature reflection. and also, I thought that what happens is, once again, Outcast becomes this location for thinking about the way that the music can turn and the way that we think about hip-hop as turning 
because no longer is it sort of thinking about just the aging MC and whether or not he's relevant. But for me, what Andre does is he situates himself as an elder who becomes responsible for communicating this insight um, about the dangers, but also about responsibility. So, right, so I write this essay to kind of reflect on all of those things. And initially, I just wanted to call it Andre's Dread, and I think it's got some subtitle now, um, but I just like that, right? And a part of what I like about the language um, is that I think that that really is the urgency that you hear in his voice. Is a For me, it's, it's about being able to claim the fear you know, that he had. And there isn't a great deal of emphasis in our culture on black men's fears, right? Um, And so I thought that this would be a way of kind of reclaiming, um, you know, the, the possibility for vulnerability and fear for a black man, you know, who had been a boy. Um, And thinking about you know, how to reconcile his experience, you know, for the sake of, of, you know, future survival. One of the things I was curious about when you wrote your essay, Andre's Dread, Mm -hmm. is that there is a particular type of reckoning that Andre does on that album, Mm -hmm. sonically. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is he sounds out of breath. He sounds like he's waking up from a nightmare. That, that, that's mm-hmm. how I, mm-hmm. you know, interpret it. But, like, the 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 breathiness, mm-hmm. the the uncertainty in mm-hmm. his voice. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a little bit about why that, you know, like, what type of reckoning do you think is going on there from him being a child who mm-hmm. was recognizing these things because they were happening in his neighborhood, mm-hmm. in his area? One of the things that I think, and I say this in that in that essay that you're talking about, um, that became very clear to me about him and James Baldwin. You know, mm-hmm. Andre grows up in the city where it's happening, and he's a boy, and Baldwin is a man who's coming back to the states to figure out what's happening. One of the things that was very clear to me in thinking about the kind of work that I do on trauma, um, there's a scholar whose work I love. Her name is Kathy Carruth. And in her reading of Freud, she says that, you know, there's always this emphasis in, in his work on this death drive. But when we really pay attention and we read that closely, it's not just this idea of um, thinking about, you know, the sort of not really ready to be born. A part of what she's interested in is the way that Freud is writing about this, uh, the unpreparedness for survival, mm. the, un, the sort of disbelief that you actually survived. What I started realizing about Andre in the way that he keeps talking about the Atlanta child murders is that it's almost as if he's trying to reckon with the fact of his own survival. Which, you know, if you do grow up as a black child with any sense of awareness, what you come to realize, particularly at the time when he's growing up, when there wasn't this idea of stranger danger, and we often talk about, you know, um, kids being able to stay outside until the, the, the street, street lights, lights came on, right? But what we don't talk about is how vulnerable you may have felt. 
And a part of what I identify with him on is I remember feeling vulnerable as a child, particularly when people are sending you to run these errands, right? So I think a part of what happens, you know, as, because it's, especially because he's so thoughtful, is that the fact that he does survive, right, and he becomes an adult, in a, in a cultural context where there is such violence, the adulthood, the adulthood, becoming an adult is almost unexpected. So when you're a black boy who gets to become a black man, it's almost like you are a foreigner. It's like you're in a place where you weren't intended, okay? So the fact that he becomes a man, what he can do now is he can reckon with what he felt and what he feared as a boy. So what manhood comes to mean, at least to me through listening to Andre, is that what it means to be a black man is you get to claim the vulnerability that you felt as a boy. Mm. And that is what he's doing. So a part of the conversation that's happening with Travis Scott is different from the conversation that he had with Big Boy on Quimini, is different from Goody Mob on Thought Process, because they were his peers, right? Mm -hmm. They could speak in common about their experience of growing up vulnerable in Atlanta, Travis Scott doesn't have that experience. He's around the same age as his son, seven. Yes. Okay. And so for me, it was sort of like now Andre's finding himself in the same context as these cartoons that we have post Trayvon Martin, where black fathers are talking to their black sons and we're calling it the talk, right? Because Travis is citing outcast lyrics. But he's doing it in such a way that doesn't suggest the same kind of knowing that Goody Mob had. So then it's sort of like, well, I have to explain to you the position that we're now in and the, the, um, the threats against us because you don't understand. So there's an urgency for me and the breathiness for me with him is like, you've got to get this. Mm -hmm. So all the fancy things that he's doing with language, this can't be about wordplay anymore. Right. You've got to get it. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, a part of the performance for him is about the urgency of how you communicate these lessons about survival to someone who doesn't understand. More from Dr. Height after this break. When the news broke that the case, is re the case was being reopened, what did you think of that? So I certainly think it's important. You know, the announcement, I thought it was, I think it's a great idea. Most people, and I, I'm one of those people who thinks that it's possible that he's guilty of something, but I don't think he did all of that, mm. right? So, um, yeah, I think to sort of, uh, you know, to give some modicum, of justice towards those families, you have to reopen the cases. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in Wayne Williams' case, it's only by association that all of the, the 28, and, you know, Maurice Hobson says that there's even more associated with the Atlanta right. child murders than that, right? But, you know, he's only in prison for two. So, you know, the idea that, you know, uh, that those other children, you know, that he's sort of by association being held accountable for that, 
but by association doesn't do justice to the families. Mm -hmm. So certainly it's something that, you know, is worthwhile and worth worth yeah. doing. So, I mean, I guess in regards to all the studies that you have done about death and mourning and mm -hmm. trauma in African-American culture, I'm wondering what could possibly bring a sense of resolution? Because I feel like in regards to American culture, like you said, vulnerability is taboo. Mm -hmm. So like we don't even get to the part where we even like sort of mm -hmm. deal and reconcile with it. But I was just wondering if mm -hmm. you've thought about that. About what would be... What would feel like a resolution in this scenario? Well, um, I think at least an effort to sort to market Right. Because one of the things, the, one of the first things that I did was call the city to see if there were any markers and there were none. Right. Mm. So a part of what I think might at least move toward justice is acknowledgement. So in order to have some modicum of that now, if you have a name, you can go to cemeteries. Right. But there's a way in which it would seem to me that we would move towards a greater sense of taking ownership for um, these children, who I think we are all responsible for, would be to move towards acknowledging um, th their loss as significant and meaningful to us. Um, and which one of the things I love about the um, the memorial in Montgomery, right? This idea that these counties are supposed to take responsibility for those lynched victims by taking those markers and bringing them back. So for me, um, I think we would move towards some sense of resolution, as you called it, if we if there was some acknowledgement, right? Somewhere where you could pay tribute and respect to those children. Um, that might that could do something that way it doesn't always fall on like an andre 3000 to remind future generations of what happened right? yeah although you know it seems to me um that at least the way that i read him he has to do what he's doing right which is why i think a part of you know and you know, to your point about my work with trauma is that you know, Carruth's work about trauma, again, thinking about Freud, is that it's necessarily ethical, right? Because the, you know, it's with Freud, what happens is consciousness survives unexpectedly. So you, there are these literal flashbacks that occur to consciousness. And it's as if consciousness is saying to itself, how did I survive this? But what it is, what is it, what am I supposed to be witnessing, right? What, why does this keep returning? What is this? But what, so it's a call and response structure. It's as if the trauma is saying, see me, right? Look at this, bear witness to this, which is what Andre is doing for his whole experience, for his entire experience. So I think at least it in the what happens with the ends is that he's doing it for the benefit of Travis right there's this structure but i think that it's a structure that models what all survivors do 
particularly within this cultural context when you are besieged by violence, mm. right, that um, we don't often in the culture have a space for dealing with because we sort of imagine that black people just know how to deal with violence, right? Which, well, that's not true. No, because I'm glad you said that because what I was thinking about as you were talking was there's a distinction, I think, between the idea of vulnerability, trauma, and silence. Mm -hmm. um, and vulnerability in this aspect is the willingness mm -hmm. to actually admit the fact that there is right. still uh, unresolved issues, unresolved feelings mm -hmm. about this very traumatic event. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I wanted to, you know, kind of piggyback off of what Chris was asking is that um, you you reference Kevin Kwashi, who's another mm -hmm. scholar, and mm -hmm. he talks about the interiority of black folks in mm -hmm. his book, The Sovereignty of Quiet, which mm -hmm. is absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, but I'm curious to hear more about, could you talk to the significance of quiet? Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, thinking about sonically, thinking mm -hmm. about like doing the archival research, mm -hmm. you know, is quiet. Mm -hmm. Like you, it's it's quiet to the point where it's forcing you to confront what it is that you are, mm -hmm. what you're reading, what you're engaging, mm -hmm. and in a song, particularly a southern rap song, mm -hmm. you know, it's known for the loudness, whether it's the loudness mm -hmm. of the bass or the loudness of mm -hmm. the voice, and Dre gives you this very quiet. Mm -hmm. delivery mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering to, you know mm -hmm. what your thoughts are about mm -hmm. how that quiet delivery of his verse is in conversation with that vulnerability that you referenced that mm -hmm. black men especially southern black men mm -hmm. don't get to express mm -hmm. freely express on yeah. a normal basis yeah I love that I mean because Kwashi's point is that quiet becomes another medium for thinking about black humanity that basically rescues black people from this idea that we're always resisting, right? That um, certainly, he says, yes, that there is resistance. But all, and he says, you know, it is true that, um, that all living is political, but not all living is lived in protest, right? And if it is the case that you structure black life as if it's always resisting and always in opposition, then what that means is that you basically require this sort of antagonism in order for your own to have existence. So what happens when you assert the possibility of quiet is that there's this chance for another domain of humanity to reign which is sort of what the way I do see what's going on with Andre. That's about, yeah, there is this coincidence, you know, that his experience as a black man is linked to black American experience. But the way that he's dealing with that is individual and specific, right? And it is in that individual specific instance that he gets to be human, and in pain and in mourning and in grief and in shock and um, in reflection about his own vulnerability. And that is what quiet can enable, right? And so I do think that he does bring into that particular song the chance for something far more meditative uh, than, I mean, because right, what Travis is doing is just sort of loud, 
you know. And so with Dre, it's something very different where um, – and you almost hear him do it, you know. And I was trying to think earlier about how to talk about that. And you see, I, you see it in television shows sometimes where you've got an older man talking to a, a younger one. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to dismiss what you're saying. But, you know, so you pay homage to what they're saying. But then you, okay, but, but let me, there's something I need to share with you that's urgent, right? And in that moment, there's intimacy, right? Um, and... Yeah, there's something, you know, that is less bombastic, you know, um, than we typically attribute to hip hop culture and to black masculinity. So in the essay, actually, I'm writing about Baldwin in The Evidence of Things Not Seen, right, which actually began as a Playboy article. Um, And the first black editor and I can't think of his name right now, of Playboy, is who asked James Baldwin to come and write the essay. So that essay is in the Maynard Jackson collection. So he extends that essay into the evidence of things not seen. So in that particular essay, what Baldwin says is that what Carruth is talking about in terms of Freud ball in and this idea of us as survivors of trauma, right? For Freud would be the death drive, you know, birth. With Baldwin, us what he says is the same thing, but it but it's Christian. So he says, you know, we all come here, we all came here as candidates for the slaughter of innocence. And what he's talking about is King Herod. Right. So we're he's trying to kill all the boys so that he can eliminate the chance for a messiah. Well, the fact that we exist means that we're we survived Herod. Right. So he's also dealing with this gift of survival. Right. Baldwin is in evidence. But there is a moment when he's talking about coming to Atlanta in evidence of things not seen. And he so he begins, the very first page, he's talking about how this memory that he has. But he says, but I'm not exactly sure if this is a memory or if this was me. That, you know, I'm walking or, you know, somebody's telling me that they're walking and this person tries to put them in a car and then they're in this car and, you, and, and they're in a trunk of the car and there's this tom-tom silence. Well, the drum, okay, becomes important for Baldwin because in another reflection, there's an essay that he writes, and I mention it in the edited essay that is going to be in your outcast reader, that Baldwin is reflecting on black people who were um, enslaved, and they're in, he's in Senegal thinking about the uh, Middle Passage. And he says it is at that moment that you lose language because where, where, where are you going? What language can you possibly use to describe the horrors of that experience? So for Baldwin, music becomes the place for reckoning with that original site of violence, right? So a part of what I suggest is that he rediscovers that violence, that music, and that effort to make sense of the music in that car trunk, in the trunk of that car in Atlanta. 
So it's in Atlanta where the music, right, this processing through this drum is an effort to articulate the violence of the black American experience. The tom-tom drum becomes the bass drop. Yes. In the Dirty South. And this is exactly what, you know, right, so, I mean, the best illustration of that is Andre 3000. Baldwin, for me, I mean, some scholars say that he is the most quoted black American, including Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, since the birth of Black Lives Matter. And that, you know, because in some ways he's sort of like this Cassandra figure, you know. I mean, he was sanded and we couldn't get it, you know, until it was too late. Um, So for me, it's sort of like, which is the position that I find Andre in talking to Travis. Mm -hmm. Like, you you have no idea what I'm, you don't know what you're talking about, you know. Um, So they, interestingly enough, Baldwin and Dre are in conversation with young black people about the urgency of ancestral wisdom. Come on here, Dr. Hyde. Yeah. Come on here, Dr. Hyde. And they're the ancestors, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's sort of, you know, we don't sort of imagine that there's ancestral wisdom in hip-hop. Would it it be safe to say that Andre is a hesitant deliverer of ancestral wisdom? Because what I mean by Mm -hmm. that is, in his interviews, he's always talking about his hesitancy to be put on this particular type of pedestal. Usually when you think about ancestral anything, Mm -hmm. ancestry puts you on a particular type of pedestal. You Um, opt in. Yeah, you like, you know what I'm saying? And we, it's not even like he wanted to put himself in that position. We put him there. Yeah. And it's like he's trying to reckon with that type of yeah. That type of honor, but also that type, like you said, like that type of responsibility to be able to not only speak for his own anxieties and his own vulnerabilities from being a boy coming up during mm-hmm. the, you know, the child murders era, mm-hmm. but also the flip side of that is mm-hmm. he's speaking for those dead kids. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and this is one of the things that I find problematic with so many of these, um, this renewed interest mm-hmm. in the child murders, whether it's a documentary, songs, or whatever, is mm-hmm. that it's not a delicate enough handling of the fact that you are speaking for dead black children. Right. You're not necessarily thinking about that aspect of it. And I Mm -hmm. feel like with Dre, he's giving you like a litany Mm -hmm. of a a litany of survival, so to speak. Yeah. And he's like trying to tread lightly because he Mm -hmm. knows that he's not just speaking for himself and he's not just sharing that experience Mm -hmm. with other people who are familiar. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. One more thing, like, do you feel like that's there's a hesitancy there, and maybe that hesitancy is recorded in the type of, in the way that he delivers that line on the ends. What you've described as the litany, I refer to it as his Atlanta requiem, Mm -hmm. right? And a part of what I think about him, and you know, certainly, I mean, I defer to your expertise, um, but one of the things that he seems to me to be a critic of American culture. And any critic of American culture is going to reject the pedestal, right? Mm. Um, because what it it would mean that you would accept the sort of the hierarchies and the arrangements of the culture. So it would seem like a part of what you know in in talking about the wisdom that that he's offering. 
I don't mean it in the way that the cultural the culture would mean it because in the culture right like if he were to be this oracle right it would be like he has it all figured out I don't think he has it all figured out and he doesn't think he has it all figured out he's trying to process the grief he's trying to process the dread and the fear and so I would imagine that he he still sees himself um, as someone who's trying to make sense of it all and again, and so when he's with his peers, he's in conversation with them over the work that he's still trying to do, right? But I think for those of us, you know, who've committed ourselves to intellectual life, we know that that's the way it, it is. It's ongoing. So that doesn't mean that you can't be an ancestor, right? Mm-hmm. But in the way that the culture would try to mark him, yeah, I think he would definitely reject that, and I don't blame him. You know, because then it would mean that he couldn't continue to do the work right. of processing the grief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I do think it might be ongoing. I mean, that's the point of being able to have a place where you could go and pay tribute. Mm. I definitely think that those of us who are honest in our um, intellectual lives, what we know is that black skin doesn't make you kin. Right. Come on, Zora. And so, right. So, um, Tamir Rice, um, Trayvon Martin, Ayanna Stanley Jones, that was all under Obama's watch, Barack Obama, right? And he was slow to respond to um, black grievances. So, you know, I'm actually working on a book on Toni Morrison, um, on her uh, fiction. And I have a chapter, interestingly enough, that is like about litanies. And one of the things that I argue in this book, in this particular chapter, is even though Barack Obama claims that Song of Solomon is one of his favorite books, I argue that he misread it. Because one of the things that he never understood about um, black grievance is that it could be offered up as a prayer. So what happens, like in Morrison, is that, so Umberto Echo, when Morrison does, um, she curates a show at the Louvre. It was actually, that involved hip-hop, right? What The person who follows her is Umberto Echo. And his show is called The Infinity of Lists. And so he does, you know, he curates a show that uses all these paintings that are at the Louvre that are lists of things, fruits and battles, right? Well, I now have the book, The Infinity of Lists, and there are no black authors in it. But if you read Morrison, there are tons of lists. And Song of Solomon has some of my favorite. You know, like, so there's the Railroad Tommy when he's talking to Guitar and and Milk Band about what you ain't going to have, okay? But one of them is between um, Porter and 1 Corinthians. And, um, And so they're in conversation, and it's a sort of call and response structure. So part of what I argue about Barack Obama is that he never, he misreads these complaints, right? He sees it as just that, as complaining. He doesn't see them as um, testimonials. 
he doesn't see them as um, pleas for assistance or prayers, right? So there is this way in which there is an absence of black quiet, a recognition for quiet in black life. What happens, and Maurice Hobson talks about this in Legends of the Black Mecca, is, you know, for those young black men, goody mob, you know, who were coming of age when the city is trying to clean up its image for the Olympics, they were the ones who had to pay uh, for the crimes of the city and its effort to try to appear good at the same time that there were white men in office who were dealing dirty. So, you know, what Hobson argues is that then what happens in hip-hop is that you get this emergence of a critical voice against Maynard Jackson. So, but he says, you know, but eventually, you know, they rethink some of that critique, right, against him. So what that suggests, that rethinking, is that there can be a maturity in black criticism of government. So, you know, what might have initially been a polemic can be nuanced. Okay, right, I'm going to listen to this brother and see what he has to say. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, right, that that they he gets my vote. He's going to have to earn it. Well, that's mature, right? That's mature. So um, given the way that those Atlanta rappers evolved in their thinking about government, I think that we can, you know, be hopeful that 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 of discernment, that the ability to be discerning about government remains. Thanks so much for listening to our extended conversation with Dr. Michelle Height. If you haven't already, check out our episodes about how hip hop memorializes the Atlanta child murders. Those episodes are called Thought Process, Surviving Silent Terror, and The Ends of Dread. And if you like this conversation, you'll probably also like our extended interview with Dee Dee Peaches Murray. So let us know what y'all think, and we hope that everyone is safe and healthy out there. Thank you for listening to Bottom of the Map, brought to you by WABE and PRX. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. It will help more people find this show. Follow Bottom of the Map on your social media platforms at BOTMPod. Again, that's BOTMPod. Bottom of the Map is hosted by Christina Lee and Dr. Regina N. Bradley. Produced by Floyd Hall. That's me. Edited and mixed by Stephen Major Key. Our executive producers are Jan Berry and John Haas. Our theme music is produced by Smith and Cash. Special thanks to Mike Johns and Lois O.G. Reitzes. This program was made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Follow, subscribe, connect. Holla.
It's as they say in International Players Anthem, Mike. I choose you. From PRX.